Please join me as we turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we're going to be finishing the chapter. Starting in verse 11, we've seen that Moses is born, but now what? Well, we, we get this summary kind of meanwhile, or fast forward, and the Bible does that with two words. One day, one day, when Moses had grown up. So we're fast forwarding quite a few years, starting in verse 11. Hear now God's word. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? This man, the man in the wrong, answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses was afraid, and he thought to himself, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up, and he saved them, and he watered their flock. When they, the daughters, came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They, the daughters, said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. So Ruel said to his daughters, And where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And we get these beautiful verses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Hidden within a beloved kids movie are many of the same truths we find in Exodus chapter 2. That movie is Wally. Wally is a story of a robot who's left to, to clean up the earth after those terrible humans have made it uninhabitable. What's left of the human population has in, is in space, on a space cruise ship, and they don't have to work for a minute. They're on these hover chairs that take them wherever they want to go, so they never even have to walk or stand up. They have all their food in liquid form, so they just eat it through a straw, and they are as entertained as they possibly could be. They always have a screen right in front of them. Never have to talk to anyone, never have to do anything. Sounds like a, some of our dream. Uh, but you can imagine what they looked like and what they felt like. Fat, lazy sloppy, not real sharp, just kind of blah. Well, what they didn't know is that they weren't actually free 
to make all these decisions that they were making. They were actually being enslaved by some of the other robots on that cruise ship. All the while they thought they were in control, they were enslaved. And they needed deliverance even without them, even without them knowing it. And without them knowing it, only Wally and his companions knew the truth and were trying to rescue them. I'm reminded of this movie because in this text, what we see from the Israelites and from us is that they didn't deserve deliverance. They were fat, stubborn, lazy, not seeking deliverance at all. Much of their deliverance took place when they couldn't even see it happening. And it took place not because of their faith, but despite it. And that's what our text this morning is really all about. We'll see these three things uh, from our text. We'll see that God gives deliverance even when we don't deserve it. We'll see that God works deliverance even when we don't see it. And God assures deliverance even when we don't believe it. So we're going to start in verse 11. Verse 11 and 12, we just read it. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to the people, looked on their burdens, and he saw. Sounds a lot like that language we see later. God saw and looked. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and he didn't see anybody. So he struck him down, and he hit him in the sand. Moses came down from the palace with riches with education, with prestige to be among his people. Not just the working class, the oppressed class, the slave class. And when he saw an injustice, he acted. Now we might think this is just cold-blooded murder, simple as that. He even tried to stash the body, right? But Stephen from the book of Acts illuminates this. He helps us understand what was actually going on. In verse 23 of Acts 7, he says, when, he was 40, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the people of Israel, the children of Israel. And he saw one of them being wronged, so he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Here's the verse. He supposed that his brothers, the fellow Israelites, would understand something that God was giving them deliverance, salvation, by his hand. But what happened? They didn't understand. They didn't get it. This wasn't mere revenge for Moses. It was a signal. It was a signal that God was giving the people deliverance by his hand through him. But how did the people respond? Verses 13 and 14. When he went out to the next day, two Hebrews were struggling. We can imagine them fighting. And he said to the one man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Why'd you hit him? And this man, instead of actually answering the question, said, who are you? Who, you're acting like you're in charge of me. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Oh, I get it. You're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian." As Stephen said, they didn't understand. They didn't understand his actions. They didn't understand who he was. They rejected him. Now, hopefully the connections to, to Jesus, our ultimate deliverer, are hopefully a little obvious. 
Isaiah 53 reminds us that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And John 1 tells us, because Isaiah is a prophecy, right? A prediction of the one to come. A promise of the one to come. John tells us, no, Isaiah was right. Jesus, this man that Isaiah spoke of, he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. Now, I, I want to help us uh, escape from, from a very easy trap to fall into uh, when we read this story and stories like it. Moses is the focus of the story. So it's easy to identify with Moses. Moses got rejected. I sometimes get rejected too. So I, I just need to do what Moses did. Or whatever God did to Moses, that's what will happen to me. And to that I would say yes, but also no. Because I don't know about you, I'm not Moses. You might be more Moses than I am, but I, I'm not Moses. I'm not the chosen deliverer of God's people. I'm not the greatest prophet Israel has ever seen. In this story, we're not the prophet who's getting rejected. We are the people doing the rejecting. We are the rejectors, not the rejectees, rejected. The, the question is not for us, how did God help Moses through his rejection? The question is, what did God do to the people who rejected his deliverer? What did God do to the rejectors? A simple way for, for me to think about this is uh, if you were to picture yourself and some other person. We're going to have two scenarios. In this first one, this person's a stranger. You don't know them. And so you're at the grocery store or somewhere else. And in the parking lot, you, you see through the window someone driving and you see they don't have their seatbelt on. What would you do? Exactly. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They would drive on their way. You don't wish them harm. You don't hope they get in an accident. But you do nothing. You do nothing. That person's at least old enough to be driving. They understand the consequences of their actions. If they suffer the consequences of their actions, so be it, that they deserve it. But now imagine that person is someone you care deeply for. Your spouse, your child, a parent, a friend. And they start driving without a seatbelt. Or they start doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Or they tell you that they're going to give all their money to a Nigerian prince who emailed them. What do you do now? You don't do nothing. Right? You, you stand in front of that car and you demand they put their seatbelt on. You stop them from doing whatever crazy idea they were thinking of doing. You insist and insist and insist they don't email that Nigerian prince. Because you love them. Sure, they, just like the first person, they deserve whatever's coming to them. But you don't care. Because you love them. Love changes everything. Because you love them, you're going to act. And the amazing news in Scripture is that God did not leave us as strangers to simply get what we deserve, what our sins deserve. God didn't only save the people who showed real potential. 
the ones who showed initiative and, and really devoted themselves to the scriptures and learning about God. No, God took enemies. God took people who weren't just neutral, but vehemently opposed to him. That's who he saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us this very succinctly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still saying, no God, no thanks, I don't need you, spitting in his face with our actions, that's when God said, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you. That is when Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We weren't looking for it. But that's when God decided that, despite us rejecting him, his plans of salvation did not change. What does that do? It does at least a couple of things. It, it, fills, it fills you with hope as you look at your own life like a mirror and you see mistake after mistake, sin after sin. You keep falling into the same traps over and over, traps of anger, traps of addiction, traps of self-loathing, depression, whatever they are. And it gives you hope because God did not save you because you were a wonderful person who had it all together. God did not save you once you became his friend and turned your life around. No, God saved you while you were a sinner, while you were making mistakes and willfully sinning. You didn't earn your salvation. That gives me hope that I can't lose it. So for me, that's what it does. But it also helps us as we look outward, as we pray for and love our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, they might look far gone, right? There's the, there's the unbeliever and then there's the unbeliever. It gives me hope as I look at that person because they might currently reject Jesus because they see no need of him. They see no need of deliverance. But our God brings deliverance even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't think we need it. And we are all living examples of that. We are all living examples of his grace. Amen. So God brings deliverance even when we don't deserve it. And sometimes that's obvious. But at other times, it looks like God isn't doing anything at all. You can certainly imagine how the Israelites might have felt that way, right? What are you doing, God? It's been 40 years. It's been 80 years. It's been 400 years. Clearly, God isn't doing anything, right? Well, it's important to remember that just as God brings deliverance when we don't deserve it, God also works deliverance, even when we don't see it. So starting in verse 15, we read that Moses fled from Pharaoh. He ran away, and he stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Okay, uh, If your immediate reaction is, who cares? That's a fair reaction. Like, why? What's so special about Midian, and why did he mention he's sitting by a well? I'll, I'll cover this briefly because it's not the main point. But Midian is sort of the enemy nation. Imagine during the Cold War, you read, and he went to Russia. Okay? Imagine, imagine a Jewish person seeking refuge in, in Germany during the time of the, that's That's the effect. So he, he went to an enemy nation. And then he sat down by a well. You know who also sat down by a well? 
Jacob, Isaac, other fathers of Israel that God was preparing in order to deliver and rescue his people. Moses, through the Holy Spirit, is signaling here with that little phrase, he sat down by a well, he's signaling to you and to me and to whoever would read Exodus, I'm next. I'm the next person that God is going to use to deliver his people. The following verses tell us what happened. He fled to Midian, and he, he rescues the daughters of the priest of Midian, Ruel, also known as Jethro, elsewhere in Exodus. He rescues them from some shepherds who were being bullied. And, and because of that, he's invited into Ruel's home, where he eventually marries one of his daughters and has a son. Stephen tells us this took about 40 years. 40 years. Moses was seemingly just hanging out. Getting married. Playing with his kids. Maybe tending to some sheep. All the while, God's people suffering in slavery. What gives? You have to keep in mind who's hearing these words for the first time. The Israelites who are currently in slavery, they don't know Moses is in Midian. They don't even know the name Moses. This information is not going down in real time. You have to remember this was written down after events had already happened. So Moses is writing this down, not for the people who are currently going through that, but for the people who already went past it. These people... They're not, they're not wondering, hey, is God going to deliver us from Egypt? They know he did. What they're wondering, what you might be wondering, is not, is God going to deliver his people, but rather, will, will he deliver me from this next thing? What have you done for me lately? We're not, we're not, none of us are wondering, is Jesus coming? Well, he, he already came. We know he did. None, none of us is wondering, are the Israelites going to escape from Egypt? We know he did. We already read about it. That's, that's the first audience of Exodus. They, they've already been delivered. They've seen the plagues, the manna from heaven, the water from a rock. They've seen it all. They're wondering, are we going to make it to the promised land? I, I know you did something in the past, but are you going to continue to do it in the future? That might sound familiar. I know God, I mean, I know Jesus on the cross, but like, what about now? Am I going to make it? Is God going to bring me through this next thing? The response we get from Exodus and from other places in Scripture is that God is working even when we can't see it. Jesus summarizes this briefly yet beautifully in John 5. A group John simply calls the Jews is persecuting Jesus because he's doing some things on the Sabbath. Happens a lot. But in verse 17, here's Jesus' response. My father is working until now, and so am I. I'm working. If that sounds like a, keep that up there for a second. If that sounds like a weird response, understand what was going on behind that. The idea behind that is Genesis, creation. The, the Jews, as John calls them, were very familiar with Genesis. They knew that God worked six days and he rested on the seventh, but they also knew that that wasn't the last day that God ever worked, right? 
God works 24 7, 365, even on a leap year, all the time, every second, right? Upholding the universe, guarding his sheep, working out salvation. Jesus says, just like he's working, so am I. God is always working, even when we can't see it. Um, I'm reminded of, of an, old, uh, an old friend. The boy was wicked smart. I mean, he's, he's one of those that would ace a chemistry test, barely studying, but then he would forget to have dinner. Like He just had one of those brains. He, he would like invent a great invention and forget to wear socks. Like just He had that kind of brain. I knew his parents because I was often at his home, and his parents one day explained to me that they were frustrated with my friend because you, you're in school and you get long projects, like a research paper. And this research paper is supposed to take you weeks, months to do. And so they would check in with their son. It's a month till it's due. Hey, how, how's it coming? Oh, it's great. Oh, great. Let me see what you got. Oh, I, I haven't started yet. Okay, well, it's three weeks now till it's due. Hey, let me see. What, no, I haven't started yet. Two weeks. I haven't started yet. It's one week before the paper's due. Let me see what you have. I haven't started yet. Sure enough, he would start one or two days before the paper was due writing it. And I wouldn't be telling you the story if you didn't get like an A-plus every single time. Every single time. Well, being my friend, and being a little frustrated myself, I would ask him, like, what gives? Why don't you start this before a day or two? And he said, well, I do. I do. It doesn't look like it, but I do. To my parents and to my teachers, I look like I'm just being lazy. I look like I'm just procrastinating and leaving it all to the end, but I've been researching. I've been reading. I've been outlining in my head. I've been mapping out the direction this paper is going to take. And once I'm ready, once I've thought of all the arguments, all the counter arguments, then I write. And it only takes me a few hours. Well, now I'm frustrated, but for different reasons. But you know, got a good sermon illustration out of it. This is how God works sometimes. It looks like he's not doing anything. It looks like evil is winning. It looks like God's people are, are hurt and suffering and nobody notices. It looks like our suffering has no purpose, but every single time God is working in ways that we can't always see. God hears, God cares, and he acts at just the right time. We see this through Abraham. We see it through Joseph, Moses, David, the prophets, and then ultimately in his own son, Jesus. The Lord keeps all of his promises, and he shows that he is mighty to save. Once again from Romans chapter 5. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or a scripture we use to assure us that we are forgiven. Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. At the right time, when the fullness of time had come, God acts always at the right time. 
Does that not change how we suffer, how we wait? Paul seems to think so. Paul, Paul learned, just as Moses did, that because God is in complete control and always working on behalf of his people, that our sufferings are not just something to get past. Our sufferings are something that we must go through in order to prepare us for what lies ahead. And so he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we do not lose heart. We all know what that means. We do not lose heart. We do not give up. We do not lose hope. Because though our outer self is wasting away, we are each closer to dying than we were an hour ago. (laughs) But our inner self, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How? How can that be? Well, then he goes on to say, because this light momentary affliction, and by the way, in case you think Paul is sort of making light of a serious situation, this man was imprisoned, beaten, mocked, rejected, abandoned, made fun of. I mean, the guy went through serious affliction, but he's comparing it. And he's saying, everything I've gone through, it's a light momentary affliction. It is but a flesh wound. And and it's not just something we try to get past. It's not just something I have to hold on to. It's something that is doing what? It's preparing. This light momentary affliction that you have gone through, are going through, or will go through, is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that we can see, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient. They will fade away. They are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, A verse I didn't mention, but would be worth your time. Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews tells us that Moses was, was looking to the reward. He was looking to something he could not see. And that's what allowed him to do what he did. Jesus, through his suffering, was not just, not just dying on the cross, by the way, that final suffering, but everything leading up to it. Through all of that, he was working. He was working deliverance for his people, even when we could not see it, even when we did not deserve it, in order to secure for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And just as he arrived at just the right time the first time, At the right time, he will come again. And so, Christian, we do not lose heart. Deliverance has come, and a greater, fuller deliverance is yet to come. Amen? So we move on to our last point. How can we be sure? How? We're told not to lose heart, but how do we not lose heart? Well, just as God gives deliverance even when we don't deserve it, and he works deliverance even when we don't see it, God also assures deliverance even when we don't believe it. So now we're in verse 23. The first part of it says this, During during those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Clearly, the solution was not just for Pharaoh to die, because their slavery continued. 
The solution to whatever we're going through, so the solution to our suffering or trials, is not just for them to go away. Deliverance is not just a change of circumstances. It is total and complete rescue. It is permanent. Imagine if, imagine if someone said to you, I know your boss is terrible. I know your teacher is giving you problems. I'm so sorry about the head of your HOA. I'm so sorry there's such a pain. But don't worry. Someday they'll die. It's not much comfort. Because that, that might take a while. And it's also not permanent. Because what about who comes after them? What about my next teacher? What about the next head of the HOA who has too much time on their hands? What about the next president? What about my next coach? We know this doesn't comfort us because that's not what real deliverance is about. That's not real rescue. Real rescue is so much more than just waiting out our problems and looking for a temporary solution. Real deliverance is permanent. We've experienced a foretaste of deliverance as we often sing. But a greater, fuller deliverance is coming. And until then, God's people still suffer. Sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. But how do we know that God's promises still stand? How can you be sure that you will be delivered? The rest of that verse. Their cry, the cry of the people of God, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And he knew. The Lord Almighty, the same one who breathed the universe into existence, hears your groanings and your prayers and your cries. God sees and understands the suffering of his children. Jesus knows what you are suffering because he took on flesh like us. And God remembers his covenant. That is our hope. God remembers. As the psalmist reminds us, our, our salvation does not lie in our efforts, our abilities, our memory, our faith, because it is God who assures deliverance. Psalm 105. We are told to remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Is that what you're depending on? No. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. That's how Israel could be sure that they would be delivered. That's how you know that you will make it through whatever you're going through. Difficult season at home, at work, at school. That's how you know that you'll make it through this presidency and the next, this recession and the next, this medical diagnosis and the next. It's not because God promises the next president will be wonderful or your next medical diagnosis will be positive or you'll come out of the next recession with more money than you started. Those are temporary, quite frankly, pitiful promises. You are promised full deliverance where these problems don't even exist. And that deliverance does not depend on your faith or your ability to seize the day. That deliverance only depends on God 
and his promises. Contrast that with a popular Christmas movie. Near the end of this movie, you'll remember that the whole conflict was that Santa wanted to come. He really wanted to. He was on his sleigh. The reindeer were ready. He wanted to come. He was trying. He was trying his best to fly the sleigh, but he couldn't because there wasn't enough Christmas spirit. Darn. So one of the main characters, they, they had heard the gospel. They had heard that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loudly for all to hear. So she starts singing. And then someone else starts singing. And then more people start singing. And wouldn't you know it, enough people sang loudly enough that there was enough Christmas spirit and Santa came. That's not the gospel. Just want to make that clear so I don't get an email tomorrow. Santa's sleigh depended on the strength of the people's faith. He needed enough cheer from them in order to do what he needed to do. God's promises are assured despite our faith. When there's nobody seeking him, he rescues. When there's nobody looking for deliverance, he delivers. That is your God. That assurance, rather than making our faith useless or superfluous, actually makes our faith and obedience of the faith possible. Because as we read in a, in a well-known passage, this is the hope you have. Ephesians 2. Everything we have is through Jesus. For by grace you, God, you people of God have been saved. It is through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Hold on, don't go. Hold on, go back. What is the gift of God? What is not your own doing? Is it the grace? Is it the salvation? Is it the faith? Yes. All of this is the gift of God. Why? Well, part of it is it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And just as no one may boast, no one may fear either. Because if you weren't saved by your own doing, certainly you're not going to be unsaved by your own doing. Once God has rescued you, you're rescued. Welcome to the family. Great, so we don't have to do anything. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works, the obedience, come as a result of the salvation, the deliverance that we already have. Your deliverance, the very hope that you cling to when you are hurting, when you are depressed, when you are lonely, when you are suffering, is not to cheer up. I hope you haven't heard that from this pulpit this morning. Nobody is saying, Jesus is great, cheer up. It's not... Hey, I know you're struggling, but just have more faith. I mean, come on, look what Jesus did. And it's also not, things will get better soon. Just hold on. Just wait. Those are pitiful representations of the gospel. The gospel instead is, look to Jesus. Hold on to the grace and the gifts that you already have in him. Salvation by grace through faith. 
live out the salvation that he has called you to do. You are his workmanship. And look forward to your full and complete deliverance. That is the gospel we have. That is the hope that you have. Our God is mighty to save. Amen. Join me as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation you have given to your people. Thank you that we have a sure and steady hope. And thank you for this table that you have given to your people. Thank you for the, for the comfort and the strength that it gives us. I pray that we would not come to it as, as people who think they have it all figured out, but we would come as weak little sheep who are in need of the strength that it provides. And we pray this all in the name of our Deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen.